uh, uh, Shia LaBeouf's character, who's this kind of down and out on his luck, North Carolina boy. Um, these are the most important two hours of this character's life. So every scene is life or death. Every scene is the most important moment of their life. And that's why it needs to matter. If, if you're making a movie about a random afternoon, then nothing happens, right? So you're always trying to make something that is life or death. And that's your job as an actor to read in between the lines, to imbue that with it and to, and to bring that with it. So I think when I approach a character, you know, a lot of the technical stuff of like, oh, how do they dress? What is their walk? What are idiosyncrasies? Those are fun things to bring in. But I'm looking for moments in the script uh, in the script to personalize and to make that the most important thing I fought for in my life, whether it's a comedy, a commercial, or a long-term project. Exactly. Now, what's the most embarrassing moment in your acting career? Hmm. Most embarrassing moment. Um. The audition is up there, you know, because uh, what happened after that guy kind of after he asked me that question about what I would do and I said nothing and he had um, a reaction to that. The producer said, well, drop down and give me 20 because I needed to show them that I was a good soldier. And so I started I got down and I started doing push ups and they're like, oh, OK, stop, stop, stop. And on my ride home, I was like, why did I that was that was humiliating. Um, yeah, wasn't a good situation, so I don't know. I, I shouldn't about anything. Mm. Um, I think, uh, it not necessarily one moment, but the moments where I felt like it needed to be authentic inside of me, yeah, rather than just doing it. And I think a lot of younger actors, I certainly did that. Um, or, or exp I shouldn't say younger, I should just say inexperienced actors. Um, they feel like it has to be authentic inside of them rather than just like, no, just throw a fit. You don't have to actually be mad. Yeah. Just throw a fit. And if that take doesn't work, guess what? We'll do another take. And that is one thing that has been really great about digital um, digital technology lately is that like, yeah, you can do 30 or 40 takes now and you can really start stretching and taking risks because you're not wasting film. It's data. And I think that we're, we're really starting to catch up with like what sort of like boundaries we can push with acting and performance in a way that, you know, um, if you have a hundred million dollars and you're Christopher Nolan, then yeah, you can take as many takes as you want on film, but for the indie filmmaker, knowing that it's digital and it's really just an, you know, a solid state drive card, um, you can, you can really start pushing stuff. And I think that that's exciting to me. Um, cause now actors are going to be given more, more leeway to make decisions. Yeah. Now how has Corona affected your acting? I know like as actors, we've come up with, you know, creative ways to try to stay afloat, but how is, you know, Miss Rona affected you? Um, so I just did a project this week actually for somebody. Um, and, uh, it's about, uh, Tesloscope and, and I can share a little bit about it. Um, and so I had to do it all alone. I had to set up my lighting and my sound equipment and uh, film it on my phone, uh, which works for the film because it's a it's a, like a teleconference, like we're you know using Zoom, so yeah. it's going to work out for cinematography and whatnot. But it's a it's a completely different experience. Um, in a way, it's harder 
because I'm more, I'm harder on myself than a director is, right? Yeah. I'll get done with a take and the director will be like, that was great. We can move on. And I'll say, can I do that one more time? I really want to do it one more time. I feel like I missed this, this, and this, and, and I just, I feel better. And then, you know, sometimes the director were like, no, I think you got it. Or sometimes they're like, of course, if you want to, let's do it again. We're set up. Let's do it. Whereas when I'm all alone doing it, it's like, oh man, like I, you know, I'm too, I'm too big there. I'm not big enough there. I'm this and that. So I think drawing it in and having so much more, it's been good because I've, I've been able to be critical and also forgiving in a way that I hadn't been able to exercise before. Um, you have to watch your own work. You have to be aware of what you do. Um, but this has made it all the more, uh, uh, vulnerable to me to really be in charge of my own stuff that I'm submitting, um, is, uh, interesting. Um, certainly projects have slowed down. Uh, so I've concentrated on writing. I'm trying to make sure I, I, I create some stuff on myself, but, um, yeah, I think that's been my, my biggest, uh, biggest lesson. Nice. How hard I am. Yeah. Uh, we are our own, like, we are our own worst critics sometimes. Like there's never going you know it's hard on you as you you know and uh i saw on your uh live you were making sushi which is funny because i've tried to make sushi. <laughs> that tonight. yeah and my sushi is never is because you know i'm a california roll type of guy which is really not sushi at <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah you know what i do is i get the rice i get the seaweed and I, um, at Tom Thumb, I don't know if they have one in Austin, but in Tom Thumb, they have a um, seafood salad, which is basically like the imitation crab. And uh, mine yeah, yeah. turns out to be like pokey balls almost. Like it's just a huge <laughs> spicy ball of rice with fake crab and you know, seaweed. Rabbit. Well, my, you know, to, to, to bring it back to, to acting, my, Acting coach is all about this. Like an actor needs to experience as much about life as possible. You need to play an instrument. You need to dance. You need to be in the kitchen. You need to be doing, you don't have to master those things, but you need to be in those spaces, stretching yourself because those feelings of I'm not good enough, those feelings of I'm not doing this very right. You need to learn. How, it, that's what Viola Davis says. You know, her, her big quote is the discomfort needs to be the comfort. Yeah. And, and like, it gets me because, you know, as a musical theater kid, we think, oh, well, we're well-rounded because we can act, sing and dance, but there's so much more <laughs> than that. You know, there's yeah. lighting, producing, directing, writing, uh, yeah. props, set design, costume design, you know, like uh, one actor told me uh learn everything so you can be worth something you know you know yeah you're a good actor but what else can you do you know what i mean yeah be an asset yeah, yeah. now if you're because you're going to be competing against people who are also good actors mm -hmm. you know i mean i'll even in austin which is a smaller market you know I'll, I'll feel good about myself. Oh, we're looking for commercially attractive young men for this particular thing. Awesome. Ooh, I got the audition. That means they selected me and I show up and there's 30 other guys like me. And that's for that hour. And they're auditioning people all day. So they're going to see hundreds of people just like me. So if you're not uh, a, a balanced and charismatic and, and, and also just stretching yourself in other areas, then you're just not, you're not doing yourself any favors. Yeah, exactly. 
And your wife, she does acting too, right? No, she is an immigration attorney. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I asked because, you know, there's this thing where if you, if an actor marries another actor, it often becomes a, you know, a competition of sorts, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Like Rachel Weiss and, and uh, Daniel Craig can make it work because they're both A-listers. But, yeah. Um, you know, uh, a, a B celebrity or a D celebrity with an A-lister, that can be tough. Um no, it's funny. Uh, we uh, we actually, my wife and I, were able to perform in a play in college together. A little ten minutes. So um, we have, we'll always have the stage. Nice. We'll always have. And and has uh, your son gotten play. bit by the bug yet? Man, he's getting there. I, I think he uh, TikTok has been a really big thing for him. He's wanted to make TikTok videos, yeah. and you know, a couple of years ago, I tried to make some fun things with him. And he, he has a, he has this really tremendously big personality and what that translates to is he's very stubborn. So I can't <laughs> direct him or give him lines. I couldn't do that like two years ago, but now he's a little bit older and he's really starting to think about like, I I've been able to do some projects with him. We did a little TikTok video um, and I gave him some lines to say, and I generated it, and we we shared it, and he could see that the final product was really good and funny. And so that's opened him up to, oh, okay, so having lines and having like this gr larger narrative to do can make we can make something. So now, even if this moment it's not as fun, it will be worth it to watch the video at the end. And I think it was William Faulkner who said, "I don't like writing novels." I like having written a novel. And that's like what I can literally see my son going through right now. I don't like the actual process of making the thing. I like having made a thing. And I think that's an okay mental state to be in. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. Now, was there ever a time when you had a hard time picking a role and or not picking a role but like doing a role and how did you overcome that absolutely um i don't think he would uh, mind me sharing this um there was a uh writer director he he had worked with me before and he he liked decisions i was making so he had a project he wanted to bring me in for it and um uh english is not his first language and I don't mean that in any derogatory way, but the, the script uh, had some challenges to it. And he and I had conversations about it and he was very open about that. He was like, hey, I, I, you know, I, I'm willing to, to hear your feedback and to improvise some things back and forth. Well, the really challenging thing about this project was I was the only one on camera and it was a long script. And so it's a little bit of a psychological thriller. It's a little bit of a whodunit, what's going on. And I remember uh, thinking to myself, like, oh, I think I want to get out of this um, because I, I was suddenly, you know, just realizing, like, I was going to have to carry this whole thing. I was going to have to. I'm the only one on camera. And it's like a five page monologue. And as you know, monologues, you know, the, the, the general rule in, in film production is that a page is going to be worth about a minute of screen time. 90 page script you have about a 90 minute film um and so i'm looking at this but monologues aren't the same monologues because it's just the character talking they take time 
So I'm looking at this four page script that has nothing but monologues, me talking on it. And I'm thinking this is going to be like an 11 minute film. It's going to be one guy talking. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to. And so there were a couple of challenging parts um, in the, the script. And I remember when we were doing it, um, I just had certain boundaries and I had certain requests. And I said, like, this is what I need to perform this part. What can ha you know, can you provide that they did? Um, and I ended up winning some uh, best actor awards at some international film festivals because of that project. So, nice. you know, communicating, yeah, communicating with your director, like what you want, what you need uh, matters. Um, taking on a challenge. Like I was really ready to not do it um, because I just felt like, you know, maybe I'm not good enough or maybe, you know, this needs more work and just kind of taking the risk. Um, this sounds a little fatalistic, but a buddy of mine was like, well, it's a short film. So if it's bad, nobody will watch it. <laughs> and I said, ah, that's a good point. It's just time. You know, do I want to invest in it? And I just kind of wanted to take the risk. Like, all right, can I, can I do this? And so now I can put international uh, award winner on my acting resume and it's not a lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do you have any questions for me? Um, yeah, man. Uh, so as a, th as a musical theater, like what, what is drawing you back into the industry right now? And, and, and what do you see the podcast being able to do for you? As a, as a in the industry, well, the podcast is definitely like I've definitely made some really great connections with it. I tell you that I, you know, it's given me access to almost every theater in the Dallas Metroplex. I, um, you know, I interview people that I normally wouldn't talk to, and you, you oh, know, nice. give them a platform and. You know, I um, like I've interviewed junior players. I keep Bubba Tunde. Uh, yesterday, I interviewed uh, Clinton Greenspan, who was uh, the last Aladdin on Broadway. And I interviewed uh, the last genie on Broadway, um, Major Attaway. So that was pretty cool, you know, getting to, you know, share things with them and then sharing things with me. So I've definitely made a lot of friends doing this podcast. And it's something that I've always wanted to do, but never did. And I was like, well, the theaters are closed. So now's the perfect time, you know? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, I was supposed to be uh, uh, Seymour. Uh, I was going to do Little Shop of Horrors before. Oh, man, that's my favorite really? musical. Yeah, I, I chose oh, that 100%. musical because I've been blessed to play everybody I want. So I want to, like, branch out into roles that I normally wouldn't do. And I was like, well, we both right, wear right. glasses. So, you know, and it is a good, it <laughs> is a go. good musical. But are, are, are you oh, in the musical city? Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, but that doesn't mean I don't appreciate a well-done musical. I, I think um, for whatever reason, uh, no, 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 I can blame my older sister she would demand to have the VCR and she would watch musicals. And I hated that she did that. So I, that's because that's why I don't do musicals. Yeah. <laughs> What's your, even though like, you know, like if, if singing in the rain is on TV, it's like, all right, let me watch this. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, uh, watching Hamilton, obviously on Disney plus, um, you know, and the, the, I think all the elements that come together for musical theaters, like what's so brilliant about it. And yet, it just never, never became a, a big part of 
I'll stop talking. <laughs> yeah, what are your top three favorite musicals if you have a top three? No, I have a top three. I, Little Shop of Horrors is absolutely on Ooh. top. Just starting off with Skid Row um, is just like, my I goodness. I love how it what starts a, off. Yeah. Like, I love musicals that start off with yeah. like an ensemble song. Oh, it's so good. Um, and who's the actress in the film? She She was on Broadway for a long time. Um, and she is the older woman coming down the alley. Uh, I'm not sure. I forget her name. She it's it's on YouTube from the film. She also uh, did it on Broadway. She's she's just worked forever and ever. It's embarrassing. I can't remember her name right now. But just that whole opening is just delightful in every way. Um, I think in terms of um. Well, I, and that's my problem. My musicals go to basically like what got adapted to film, mm-hmm. right? So, um, I I was actually lighting. I was it was just a part time job, you know, it was just a side job. But I was lighting one of the um, uh, uh, lights in um, Damn Yankee, and that was uh, that was fun. But I wouldn't put it in my top three. Uh, I would say um, I got to put Phantom of the Opera in there mm. just because like uh, top to bottom, it's just so just really, really good. Um, and I got into a really long conversation with somebody recently about Hamilton and just about how um, it's a great disruptive. I didn't realize it was yeah, all like I didn't realize it was all um music. Like it's they, they have like one minute of dialogue. Yeah, it's in like it. a Vita, it's like Le, Le Mis, it's like those those musicals where it's like nonstop. There's no like you know, scenes where they're talking and then they break into song. Um, like Little Shop, uh, which is very fun. Those are those are great. Um but uh, those where it's a nonstop musical is obviously just a completely different animal. And that just takes so much craftsmanship and, and so much attention to detail and so much talent to, to produce. You know, there's a reason why it just kind of like dominated the awards. Oh, yeah. And like uh, the only two pet peeves that I have about this podcast is um, like whenever I invite people on and they ask me for money, <laughs> like that's the, you know, that's podcast, the one thing. Man. Cause I don't know. Yeah. Cause like, I don't know really how to respond. I was like, you know, I feel like when now I could understand if like I was interviewing like somebody like Whitney Houston or, you know, Mariah Carey and you know like I had one guy last night he was like my time is money and you know I want to get paid like 50 to 100 and I was like I don't mind paying you but I would have to pay what you're worth which is nothing (laughs) you know what I mean but I'm not saying that on a personal level I'm just saying it on a professional level like you know you know kind of like the Monique versus uh, Netflix thing. They, you know, they were trying to pay her on what she'd done lately versus Amy Schroomer, who sells out arenas. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. And then I and then another thing I hate is when people ask you how many listeners you have. And that's just like a personal thing. And I want your opinion on this, because I feel like as an artist, one of the things that we love the most is attention. Yeah. You know, So I feel like if you give me an opportunity, I don't care if you have one listener or if you are gonna save it for yourself you know i just want to be seen and heard in any type of capacity and i'm never gonna give that up so when somebody asks me how many listeners i have i'm like are you really doing it because you love it like are you a real artist yeah i I well i i know that like those are like separate conversations because it's almost like yeah, if you were selling this podcast, if you were trying to get like a an endorsement on your podcast, then yeah, you need to come up with that stuff. But if you're just talking about like what the podcast yeah. industry has has started off as versus like what it is, I mean, you know, it's tough because like I'm not, I don't mean to pick on him because I I think he he's got a lot of talent. But Rob Lowe just started a podcast, and it's kind of like, yeah, do you really need to start a podcast, dude? Like you, like you're already a, a brilliant actor. You've already had a great career and you're still working. Like people are still hiring Rob Lowe. There's no problem there. And yeah. you could kind of argue is like, well, he's an A-lister. So he's able to get A-listers to come onto his podcast easier. He's able to get endorsements, that kind of thing. But it's like, well, what about guys like you and me? Now we got to compete with Rob Lowe in this space. And that can feel like kind of frustrating. Yeah. All right, dude, like this is just about conversations. Like the people who are going to listen to this are the people who are just trying to like hear different voices out there, you know, trying to kind of, they're, they're maybe thinking about their craft. They're in the industry. They're just kind of like hearing other people's perspectives and just listening to grow as a person rather than like, Oh, somebody famous. It feels like I'm hanging out with Rob Lowe. If I listen to Rob Lowe, talk to David Spade for an hour, it's like, I've been hanging out with these two people. And like that, yeah, that's the um, shortcut that a lot of celebrities, and again, not picking on Rob Lowe, um, but like, it's just this, this, this space where we're trying to democratize it, trying to just make it available for people like you and me to just, just shoot the shit. Yeah. And I feel like it's a trend now. Cause like you said, everything's closed. There's nothing else to do. So the big thing of, 2020 everybody makes a podcast and the minute that you know things start opening back up people are gonna like just say okay well that was fun you know it's kind of like um it's kind of like tiktok and i definitely need to get in it myself because everybody has been telling me oh you should you should really make a tiktoker you should get a tiktok because it's easy to storytelling is part of your repertoire you know if it's not, then it's like, obviously it's not going to serve you any, you know? Um, and I'm saying that to, to anyone who's listening, like, you know, don't feel like, Oh, TikTok is big now. I need to get in it. Or this is big now. I need to get in it. Like, what is your passion? And like, you know, just in this interview, like your questions, like what you're trying to do, like you're passionate about this and you're passionate about having conversations like that ultimately is what people want. They don't want someone who's super smooth and good or this and that they, they want that passion. So, you know, if like if TikTok is in your wheelhouse as far as making 15 second to one minute little videos, like definitely do it. But if it's more about conversations and like slow burning and, and working through things like 
Don't even worry about it. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, and it's really a young person's thing, too. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, hey, we're young. I, we're hip. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know I, don't, I don't even understand all the dancing and whatnot. Like, <laughs> man, I tell you, you know, you, YouTube is definitely dying out, though. I know a lot of people are leaving YouTube. Yeah. That, I, you know, you almost, who knows what it will look like in, because I mean, what, what if, what if renting a server, like you personally renting a server for $30 a month off Rackspace and you just put on your own content, how many people would, mm -hmm. would subscribe to that for 50 cents a month? And if you get 10,000, if you exactly. get 10,000 people doing that, you're making $5,000 a month. And all you're doing is paying $30 a month for your own server for people to access. Like, I think that, I mean, <laughs> You talk about technology. That's what 5G is all about, man. Like we should be begging 5G to be expanded so that people on the outside, smaller businesses can utilize smaller servers, smaller programs, smaller ways to get in, 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 in contact with other people and to use these single vendors. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's really incredible what will happen in the next 10 years technology and how much direct access we will be able to have for people. And what will sell is passion. What will sell is personality and heart. And yeah, because the, the industry, you know, it's in like weird how the industry changes. Like it's ever evolving. Some things come back. Yeah. Some things like say, for instance, there's been movies and I, encourage my cousin who's a writer i said if you put something out and you do, and it doesn't stick right now it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad it probably means that it's just the, not the right yeah. time because there's so many movies i mean look at mean girls it came out in 2004 it didn't catch on until like a hundred years <laughs> after it was yeah. already made where you it know? was like yeah yeah this is good S same thing with um anchorman and stepbrothers I walked out of the theaters on Anchorman. Oh, man. I was like, this is boring. This is just silly and stupid and boring. And I walked out and then I was back in college, I think, or, or I just started hanging and people kept quoting Anchorman. And I was like, what is going on? And then I watched it and was like, okay, well, I missed that. But I, um, you said something that triggered and I forgot. doesn't matter. No, I was just talking about how the industry changes, things like evolve or like mm, come yeah, back yeah. around. Like, yeah, a movie that was made in 2004 and everybody hated. Now we love, you know. Well, you know look, at, I mean? look at what Legendary did with their live stream podcasting with those uh, video game people who just play Dungeons and Dragons. It's, that's literally what the yeah. show is. And they got hundreds of thousands of people watching live, you know. Um, that sort of thing where uh, uh, melting, just connecting, just feeling like you can connect with what you're watching um, or, or listening to, like, man, that matters like more than anything else. I'm telling you. And like um, another thing, when it comes to like evolving with like social media, because I see you on your, uh, live stream a lot like what got you into live streaming i mean i could never do it my i have quarantine yeah right yeah now. <laughs> um but what, what got you i would up? say quarantine and just having the equipment <clears throat> i apologize coughing mm -hmm. there um 
just trying to sort of come up with something to uh, uh, put things out that people could enjoy, uh, that people could participate in and, and just being bored at home, wanting to do something. Um, I don't know what form it will take moving forward. I've uh, been able to really focus on like some writing and some other projects. Uh, so I haven't live streamed as much, but uh, it's just something that kind of is um, you, you, the technology is there. It's right in your hands. It's, it's there for you to be able to kind of do and, and say things. And so um, if there has ever been a year, which that matters, it is this year. Uh, yeah. Cause out. there's nothing to do, but yeah. create, yeah. you know? Yeah. Now, what's your writing process like? Because I know some people like to go in closets or sit in bathtubs. Some people like to get high or drunk yeah. or go to a cafe. Like, what's your writing process um, like? I, I wish I had a more disciplined approach. Um, I wish I had a, a little bit more uh, just make myself sit down. But I, I, I've been letting the whims take me until I feel like I really need to get an idea down. Uh, it is just kind of opening up the program, um, and not worrying about, uh, not worrying about the dialogue, but just making sure that I know which scenes. And so I'm a little sporadic with it. I'll do, I'll do random scenes that came to me that I need to get down. Um, sometimes I will, I will write short films all in one sitting if I have the particular idea, um, I had a particular idea mm -hmm. kicking around. And so I sat down and I write the, wrote the entire thing and, um, now that I'm over this pink guy, I think I'm going to be able to film some of it. Uh, I blame my son. Um, yeah. so, uh, I think it's just kind of, um, I'm a little bit better now about writing than I was like five years ago when, you know, life was, um, obviously with quarantine, just kind of having that quiet time that you're sitting, you're stuck. Um, has been a little bit different motivator. Uh, so if I can just get over this malaise and depression from the state of the world, uh, be able to get some of the ideas down. Yeah, it is depressing. I mean, you can't even get high and drive and go outside no, anymore. You know? No, it's uh, it's tough. I, I, I sometimes wonder what I would write if I dropped some acid and got and stayed in front of a computer. But, uh, Mostly, it's it's a sober mind <laughs> that I utilize yeah. with writing. Well, 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 I don't encourage drug use, but I definitely encourage like trying different methods to create. Like me, I encourage um, drug use. What, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, well, like one time I did like ten tabs of acid. Don't worry, it was like crappy acid, <laughs> which is why I could take ten yeah, yeah. tabs. But, you know, I was so, like, creative, and I was so much more creative and, you know, writing, you know. So, and like I said, some things work, some things don't. But, you know, maybe open up a bottle of scotch and, you know, sit in front of the computer or the bottle of wine, know, smoke some weed or, you know, smoke some weed or, you know, do some acid and, like, you know, make sure your son is accountable for it. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> not, not under child care, like, yeah. Yeah, you know, you don't want a, your son to come in and you're playing with his toys. You know? I'm in and I'm Directing just weeping. Them. I'm just weeping at the state yeah. of the universe. <laughs> Life is so short and fragile, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it is. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, but hopefully, you know, something tells me when the election is over, the lizard people will tell us it's okay to wear, you know, go out and yeah. not wear masks and life will be back to normal. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I'm, uh, I would, I would encourage anyone to, uh, after they're done listening to this podcast, uh, listen to you are not so smart. Um, and to particularly look for, uh, the episodes pertaining to tribalism. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this, I'm a liberal, uh, I mostly vote Democrat. Um, and part of the thing reason why is that social safety nets and education is important to me. Um, you know, the best way to fight abortions is education, not, you know, ending abortions, that kind of thing. The best way to, um, allow, uh, people to have the best life is to provide some semblance of, of healthcare and, and, um, assistance when they, they need it. I know that, over the past 30 years, uh, it, it's just very easy for, for some reason. There's a tribalism in this country that we are looking at each other as the enemy uh, in a way that I just don't remember growing up. I remember us. Oh, they're Republicans and Democrats, but we're all in this together. We're all Americans. And for a long yeah. time, it was it was easy to do that because the Russians, you know, the Soviets uh, were very, very scary. So you know, you want to raise taxes too much and I don't want to raise taxes as much, but you know what? The real enemy is the Russians. And when that, you know, enemy disappeared, uh, I think the idea of, of tribalism, I mean, you have people who think that vice versa, people who think that Republicans are an enemy to the state of America. You also have Republicans who think Democrats are an enemy to the state of America. And you're just seeing like, man, it's, it's really scary how people are right now. Um, the point is not to listen or understand what the arguments are. The point is that I'm just going to disagree with you and make you look foolish. And that's really not yeah. a great, not a great place to be in as a country. Yeah, I tell you. Yeah, we definitely have a lot to work on. We definitely have a lot you know, to get right, you know, the yeah. world is literally in shambles right Feels that now. way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we're stuck again, picking, you know, p picking between the lesser two evils. But honestly, I feel like anybody's better than Trump. Like if Joe Biden would announce that Minnie Mouse would have been his, you know, you know, second running, I would have voted for him. Yeah. I mean, know? obviously, the lesser the, the the lesser of two evils argument i can understand criticism of that but there comes a point where one of the evils is much much worse than the other evil you know what i mean yes. so i mm -hmm. i don't have a lot of patience I, to be honest i don't have a lot of patience for my libertarian friends who are trying to paint biden as anything resembling trump um I, oh no, they're two yeah, sides. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, it's like, are you? I remember as this country was free falling into the abyss of economic depression, Obama came along and with an extremely conservative, thoughtful leadership brought us out of it. 
And, exactly. Like he was a awesome. And he man. showed up to the Justice Department and said, "You don't work for me. You work for the American people. And if me or my administration gets out of line, you need to come after us." He said that to the Justice Department. Can you imagine it? Trump has not done that. He has tried to consolidate support in such a way that is completely um, antithetical to what we should have as, as ideals in this country. And the problem with tribalism in this country is that Republicans and a lot, well, Trump supporters, I should say, love how it winds up liberals like me. I'm so upset about how unconstitutional Trump is and that is what they wanted. They wanted liberals like me to be upset. Yeah. And, and I mean, like you really, when you really get down to the core, you have a traumatized man trying to run a traumatized country. That's just not yeah. going to work. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's yeah. a six year old. <laughs> literally, literally like you have and see That's one. I don't know if you know who Gail Cronauer is. She's an amazing uh, theater teacher. I, you know, owe her to who I am as a person, let alone an actor. And she gave me some great advice. She said, get yourself together yeah. before you try to run after your career. Because there's so many people that OD. Yep. Uh, there's so many people that are like Ruins their relationships. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at Johnny Depp versus, you know, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Like, that situation is just unfortunate and horrible. No. Like, yeah, there's so many people that are broken because they don't take time to get themselves together. They're like, let me chase after my career. That'll make everything better. And it really yeah. just heightens all the problems. Yep. You know what I mean? Oh, I hear you. Like, I've been part of entanglements, but, you know, I never got on Facebook Live <laughs> because right. I'm not famous, you know? Definitely, definitely. And you, you're, you're an atheist, right? Yeah, I would categorize it. I mean... Obviously, if you force me in a corner, I will admit that I'm an agnostic. I am willing to, you know, if more evidence comes forward, then yeah. But mostly, I feel comfortable being an atheist. That that, that label yeah, doesn't and, bother me. And it's funny because when, uh, like, uh, there, I was watching this documentary and the scientists discovered that the way the human brain is wired we have to believe in something greater mm. than us or we'll go and say like we cannot you know they basically said atheists does they don't exist so what 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 do you feel about so that's a that? that's a that, that's a really great point i yeah. i look at religion as um fulfilling three taking advantage of um uh well well uh i can't remember his name right now but he's the author of the guy who uh, uh, a year of living biblically he talks about yeah. um, religion as the three B's, behavior, belonging, and belief. And so religion is a great way to feel like you're part of a belonging, that you're part of a community, part of a group. You all go to church on Sundays and Wednesday nights. It's a good way to mm -hmm. monitor your behavior. Um, we are all capable of evil. We are all capable of great, tremendous, good things to do. And so balancing between wanting to do the good things and then being motivated by our peers to do good things, that all matters. Um, you know, mobs can get unruly and they can say, let's beat up this person. We're a mob. Mobs can also say, we're going to show up and we're going to clean up this farm that was flooded. 
you know, for this person. So there's this tremendous amount of leeway that happens within people when they feel like they're part of a group. Um, and uh, that matters. So, and then there's belief. What do we believe? What are the opinions that we have all together? So those are very yeah. powerful things that religion is able to really short circuit, is really able to take advantage of. Like we're giving you a place to belong. We're, you're accountable to us for your behavior. And here are your opinions, right? So that's the, the thing of dogma. I think of religion in the sense of, yeah. um, so one of the higher one of the higher cognitive functions that humans have that allowed us to evolve technology and language and, and community is the sense of listening to our elders. So the kids who are born and they only want to experience the world through, through their own sense of memory and perception are not mm -hmm. going to have an advantage. Over, the kids who listen to their elders are going to have an advantage over those other kids. So over time, over a period of time, evolutionarily speaking, the kids with personalities that are willing to listen to their elders and feel comforted by their elders and not just wander off because, you know, I just want to do what I want. Those kids are going to have a higher probability of dying off. <laughs> and the kids who want to listen to their, now the kids who only listen to the elders and then don't do anything else, they're not going to have a, a high survivability either. So you have to have this balance of one, I'm willing to take risks and learn things and I want to do things my way. Also, elders tell me that don't touch this fire or these snakes are very poisonous or whatever it is. The sense of like, oh, I can believe authority, authorities, opinions, and I can uh, integrate it into my life and that will benefit me. And I think that is part of our species as an animal, the idea that um, we can take in information and we can feel secure with that information. We can feel good about it. Like, okay, oh, those snakes are poisonous. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Those snakes are poisonous. Well, have you ever been bitten by that snake? No. Have you ever seen anyone die from that snake? No. Well, then how do you know? Well, elders told me. Well, the kid who says, yeah. well, I'm going to play with that snake anyways, he dies. And the kid who's, well, I told you. So that, that sort of enforcement makes sense to me. It doesn't um change much as far as like the information like the the scientific method is based on sort of two ideas and it's this idea one does it make the most sense out of the information that provided and two can it predict things so like you look at evolutionary theory as a really great example does evolutionary theory make the most sense out of all of the fossil fuels, uh, not fossil fuels, listen to me, out of all the fossil record that we have available to us? Does evolution make the most sense? Yes, it does. Can it also make predictions? And here's where a lot of people don't understand evolutionary theory because evolutionary theory says, um, well, yes, because we are thinking it in terms of this way, you should be able to find fossils of this particular type of animal at this particular layer in the fossil record because we were looking for this transition. And lo and behold, you find fossils yeah. and you find them in those time periods in those layers. So it makes accurate yeah. predictions as well as having the best explanation. So when I think of like humanity, what makes the most sense? Well, you can look at this country right now and you can see that people who claim to be Christians are fully capable of being mean and rude and downright violent. Yeah. Yes. And like, 
I mean, I agree with you on like I love the how you answered that question because like I talked, I had another um, theater teacher, John Pizak, and I don't know how it came up, but I was like, are I asked him about his religious views, and he was like, I don't like to call myself a Christian because I don't want to label myself in that group because. Uh, there was a group called Focus, and they were like the stereotypical. Like, have you seen the movie Easy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they they were like Amanda Bynes. Like, <laughs> like, right. like we keep trying to we keep trying to love the gays and sex offenders, but they keep doing it over and over again. You know. But uh, he said, I don't want to be put in that category. So for the people that have trouble understanding what I say when I say I'm a spirit, spiritualist, if you want to put it in the box, yes, I'm a Christian. And that's how I am. Like, I feel like I'm more of a spiritualist. Do I believe in Jesus died on the cross and all that jazz? Yes. But when it all comes down to it, say, for instance, there's a candy store and everybody's trying to get to this candy store. Is there a wrong way? to get to the Camley store, absolutely, because there's a wrong and a right way to do anything. But most people are trying to get to this candy store. Now, it doesn't matter if you go, you know, through 35 and I go through 75. It doesn't matter if I go the Christian way and you go the atheist way, because at the end of the the day, if we... And we also live in different parts of town. Yeah, and and like there's two, there's really two rules. Treat everybody like you want to be treated. You know the golden rule. You know don't do evil. And pretty much, but you manual can't uh, uh, corrected because it's lacking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and don't do. Um, you know, know that we're spiritual beings first. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that that. So, so the right. golden rule is really, really interesting because at a time and place in history, um, the 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 things that I think the th- the things that that the present day atheist tries to do is a little too smug for me. Mm-hmm. It looks down on yeah. spiritual experiences and it looks down on um, ancient texts. And you know, I look at you know Jesus two thousand years ago. And I say, well, evolutionarily speaking, those are the same humans. And yeah, because because I don't know if you know this, but um, I want to research this documentary more because I want to know what they found. But they uh, they they can say that there was a guy named Jesus that did walk the earth. I don't know if they said yes he was crucified or yes he healed the sick i don't know as far as that but there was a guy named jesus that you know walked around so we know jesus was a guy that doesn't necessarily mean that the person in the bible was who they were you know it doesn't confirm anything it just confirms that like say for instance we read the story of frankenstein and somebody comes up with a discovery in history and they're like oh well frankenstein was actually yeah, right. that doesn't necessarily mean that he made a monster it was just you know there was a man named Senor frankenstein yeah yeah you know yeah i think yeah. i i i don't mind you know i i, I think as a as an atheist, and now I grew up Southern Baptist. I went to a Christian college, and I was a fundamentalist Christian to my core. So I did not become an atheist until adulthood. Um, 
And so until you broke free. Yeah, I mean more I mean obviously I view it that way. Um but I you know for for me it's like I I was a biblical studies major for a year and a half at Christian college. So I and I was the you know leader in my youth group kind of thing. I was the one who who preached the sermon on youth Sunday uh when I was a senior. And I was very much adamant about my faith as a Christian. And so uh, uh, for me, I have a little bit of a unique perspective. It wasn't like a slow burn. I was, I was trying to be a good Christian as, as much as I possibly could until I realized like I couldn't anymore. So I don't mind the idea of a historical Jesus. Like that's not going to, yeah. like, I don't need to, the, the atheists who try to prove that like, oh, Jesus is just a myth. He's stolen from Horus and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, look. The idea that a historical figure came along and did something very persuasive and influential, that's not that, you know, the prophet Muhammad was obviously very influential. While I don't think he necessarily flew on the back of a horse um, to Mecca, <laughs> I, I still think he existed. Um, same thing with Jesus. So it's, yeah. I, I think, you know, um, the term... And especially yeah. the term atheist itself, it's like you feel like you you need to argue the same points as like other atheists. And it's like, well, some of these atheists are just smug assholes. So, yeah. And I mean, I was watching a scientist and a pastor debate and um, they actually came up with some pretty cool theories because the scientist was saying that everything because there's only one thing that people agree on, and that was the great flood of Noah. Like, in every religion, there has been, you know, that's the only thing that every religion can, can agree on, that at some point in time in the world, there was some cleansing, Right. You know, I mean, that time. you know, tsunami dreams are actually something that I have in my anxiety. I have tsunami dreams. I have. What's so um, it, tsunami dreams are pretty common, like a, a very common dream, a stress dream is um, the car. You're driving the car from the back seat, or you're in the back seat of the car. That's mm -hmm. Have you ever had that dream? Yeah. yeah. So that's actually a very common dream. It's associated with stress. One of the common dreams that I have is tsunamis. So I'll be at a beach and the waves will just be 60 feet high in the air. And I'll just kind of feel overwhelming or I'll, I'll, you know, be under the ocean or something like that. I have these, these water dreams. So the idea that, and we know that, I mean, look at our hurricane seasons. We know that flash flooding can happen in an instant. We know if you're in a particular region, we know that people will sometimes live near rivers because that's where you can get water and fish and you can grow your, you know, so crops. So as burgeoning civilization is happening if you just have a one in a century one in a 500 year storm and that flooding happens in your region that can happen all over the world at any time so the idea of flooding and the idea that the fear of the entire world being flooded it's not necessarily that you need to think oh that definitely happened or otherwise they wouldn't have the same story flooding is just scary it's the same way yeah. that thunder and lightning is, oh, that's God's battling in the sky. It's just this, it's this very intimidating, very uh, yeah, extremely terrifying event that's happening. And if you're in a valley, if you're in a village that if you're near a if you're near the ocean and a tsunami happens, I mean, the imagine the terror of a 30-foot wave, you know, and, and how many generations will hear about that.
child or a young man and a tsunami came and killed everyone in my village but me and you you know like that 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 is a universal image that doesn't necessarily need a singular event and so when people put forward that argument that like oh the flooding happened because it's in every culture it's like flooding is scary dude <laughs> like here in texas like flooding is i and and i'll be honest with you uh hopefully i won't get too emotional but when the floods happened in Wimberley, I had just moved to Austin. And that was the event where a Christian family was stuck in a house and they didn't escape the floodwaters in time. And they were on a little river house and it was a two story house and the grandmother, the mom and the dad and the two children and the family dog were upstairs as the house was taken off of its planks and floating down the flash flood river. This happened about, six years ago during the Memorial day floods in Austin, in Wimberley. And the grandmother was on the phone with a friend, you know, saying, Oh my God, we're floating down the river. And they left the phone on and the family just got in a prayer circle and they started praying that, that God and Jesus would, would save them. And the house obviously was not constructed to be a boat. And so it broke apart. And the only people, the only person to survive was the father and the family dog. Mm. Now I happen to be one degree separated from this gentleman. I know, I knew a pastor who knew this man personally, and it was a five-year-old boy who, and I think the girl was eight years old. Devastating. Um, and you know, I, I think of what was it? 15 inches of rain that fell in 20 hours during that weekend. Mm -hmm. There's just an absurd amount of water. And we're in this area where we're neck. We just, you know, we weren't prepared for it. So those storms happen. They are terrifying. They feel like they are consuming the world in the modern age. We are like very deeply connected with that. So when I hear arguments like that about, Oh, the flood or, or this event or that event, I just think to myself, no, I, that is just us contending with how cruel and indifferent the natural world can be. I never thought about it like that, but the, yeah, apparently we, that, we apparently reached that two hour mark. But no, I was uh, I was saying the scientist, his argument with the pastor was not so much that it didn't happen, but like, look at the um, Big Bang Theory. And he was basically saying that everything in the Bible might have happened, but there's a scientific explanation. I mean, like with Nebuchadnezzar, that's an actually uh, actual real disease where your hair on your body does grow long and sure. you don't turn into an animal, but it's rare, but you know, it's explained or like when the, um, when yeah, the, they were contending with the natural world. You know, you know or, I mean, I, I, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. Yeah. Or, or like, say, for instance, I'm trying to, uh, you know, e even down to the sea uh, splitting open, you know, that there's a scientific explanation for why the sea split open. Like there's literally anything in the Bible can be argued with science. You know, it, 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 he said it's not any miracle, but it's a scientific study. Like the reason why the water turned to blood because the alkalines and the way the sun had turned you know what i mean sure i mean i you know we when we watch a lunar event 
you know, the blood, the, the moon turns blood red right before the shadow gets cast on the moon. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the Bible and you see people just contending with the natural world, like I'm, I'm, I'm giving them a lot of leeway as far as like, yeah, they don't know about this or that. I, you know, to me, um, I just, what was when I moved away from my faith, when just realizing that these were people just contending with things they didn't understand and they were doing the best they could, but man, they got some things really, really wrong. And if they don't, and, and they, they attribute it to God in a way that felt unnerving. So the one thing about like the Westboro Baptist church, uh, and they are the, forgive my phrasing, but I'm just quoting, they are the God hates fags church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Everybody knows about them. Did right. You hear right. About the guy that bought a house, uh, right across the street from them and painted it as the, uh, gay flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. The pride flag. Exactly. Yeah. Um, at least they're consistent. At least they say, look, every single word in this comes from God. Therefore, we believe all of it. And what happens during history is when you really like look at the Bible and you interpret things back and forth, you realize that like cultures seem to kind of take what what is useful to them and they ignore what isn't. So for 1692 Salem, Massachusetts, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live from Leviticus is a very important piece of scripture. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine a single Christian in America today advocating that witches should receive the death penalty from our government. They would be considered insane. They yeah. would be considered absolutely crazy. And yet, here's this time and place. So you look at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments don't talk about child abuse. It doesn't mention genocide. It doesn't mention slavery. And it doesn't mention rape. Why do those Ten Commandments not mention those very obvious, both human ethics violations and just interpersonal violations? Why, do, why does it not mention that? Oh, because they're going into the land of Canaan, and they're literally about to do all four of those things. Yeah. They're going to divide Canaan. They are going to enslave people. In they Jesus are going name, to, no, mind you. Well, in, in, in Yahweh's name, in, in the Old Testament God's name, yeah. they are going to, uh, th there's this really, really disturbing verse where it says, God says to go in this village and basically kill everything. Everything. I mean, <laughs> burn it to the ground and then the, the land is yours. Yeah, I remember it. Uh, and then a little bit, well, well, what's interesting is that that's not the disturbing part because that's at least like a commandment. The disturbing part is a, a while later, God says, oh, oh, well, kill everything except the virgin girls. Any, any young girl that has not slept, had not lied with a man, had sex with a man, you can keep them alive. And I had just, I had just had my son. And so I'm literally, I mean, this is, this is what happened. They went into this village and they killed everything that wasn't a virgin girl. Why are you going to keep the virgin girls? Well, that's pretty obvious, right? You're going to impregnate them. And once they haven't, a Jewish Israelite son, they're not going to want to kill their Israelite son. They might still be mad that you killed their family, but they're not going to kill their own children. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's subject, it's, it's domination, subjugation, that sort of thing. And so then what, what are you going to do if these young girls are, are three years old, you're going to teach them that they need to be part of the family. Uh, so it's, it's really, when you look at it from this very primitive perspective, and then you look at the scripture and it says, God gave those commandments. It's like, well, you, you have to wrestle with this, this idea either god is unjust 
or it's just primitive people giving themselves a reason to do things. Yeah, I, and uh, I never really read that scripture, but I there was a scene in Orange and the New Black when Pennsylvania, you know, she got saved and she wrote that chapter in the Bible and they asked uh, Tova, she was like, what does this mean? Your dad's a pastor. And he was like, man, yeah, they killed everybody, even the babies. Man, they were so bad, their cows had to die. Yeah. Everything. The rats in that village needed to be executed, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like nothing, left nothing. And some people say that the Bible has been tampered with, which, like I say, knowing our government, I, it wouldn't be surprising. It could be. But, I mean, I, you know, I, my perspective is I'm not judgmental of people in the Bible. Um, that was a brutal time to be alive, you know? Yeah toothache it's just not it's not a good time to be alive so for them for, for us to expect that they needed to be very progressive and that's the interesting thing like the bible never doesn't condemn slavery yet the ancient jews also talk about how you should treat your slaves humanely so even though slavery is basically condoned it's also progressive for that time and period because, I mean, if you really think about it, a slave is your property. You can do whatever you want with them. Who cares if this, they're treated humanely this or not? Nation and, was the, built and the Jews come along. Mm -hmm. I know, exactly. Uh, and, and that the Bible was used as it, it should be a, a wake-up call. Um, I have to go. Mm -hmm. I got to call an end. Yeah. But, um, but it was a pleasure talking this has to you. Been, yeah, I'm glad I could finally get Absolute you pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Talk yeah. Well, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Uh, definitely, definitely. All right. All right, Jonathan. Take care. Stay in touch. You too.